You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Oh, is it, Miss Williamson? I thought one Ancient History Fangirl podcast was on hiatus for a while. Eight weeks, I was told? Returning on the 2nd of September? Yes, Julius Caesar, but that doesn't mean I cease to exist. I'm still myself. Well, neither do I, just because I don't guest on your podcast for a few weeks. Are you cheating on us, Julius Caesar? I can't say I'm surprised. This is a very open podcasting relationship. Anyway, I'm trying to get through this sentence. This is one of my favorite early episodes and also one that's criminally under-listened to in our back catalog. It's from all the way back in our first season, and I love this episode because I feel like it's one of the first where we were really starting to find our voice and have fun as podcasters. We relaxed a little bit, and we were funnier and more ridiculous in this episode than the ones that came before. We really started to find a groove. You know, actually, Julius Caesar, this was the first one that we talked about you. I would say, Ms. Williamson, that this podcast did not find its groove until one Julius Caesar started making intermittent appearances as a special guest host. Until then, you were just flailing about in the dark, weren't you? <laughs> oh my god. I'm just going to ignore all that stuff about us flailing around in the dark because, well, maybe he's right. I don't know. <laughs> Julius Caesar's apparently the only one in this podcast who never flails around in the dark. At least he doesn't spin his flailing that way. Dick. I continue to flail around in the dark all the time. It's one of my favorite hobbies. He's just mad we didn't pick anything from the Julius Caesar arc. He's seething in the dark about it instead of flailing. (laughs) The War Elephant series is the first one where we really started to get a lot of great response online. People sending us articles and images about War Elephants and even making fan art about the episode, which I just loved so much. This episode was probably the first where I really started to feel like, wow, we have an audience... Beyond, you know, my dad, Jen's mom, a small handful of our friends, and that this podcast might actually be, you know, a viable thing. So I hope that you love this episode because I do. We'll be back from hiatus on September 2nd. Before then, if you want to keep getting new episodes from us and regular episodes ad-free, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Membership starts at just $2 per month. Have a great summer. Plutarch needs to lay off the elephant wine and get himself together. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. 
Last week, we talked about war elephants, how to catch, train, and outfit your war elephant, and war elephants in ancient India and in Alexander the Great's army. And once you get started looking into war elephants, you start to see them everywhere. I started to see them everywhere. War elephants are everywhere. Jen, do you remember in Star Wars, the Imperial Walkers, those giant metal walkie things that appeared in the Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, and they were also in, I say this at the cringe, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. For those of you who might have a fuzzy memory on this, the Imperial Walkers were the giant four-legged robot things walking through the battlefield. And these things are basically war elephants given a sci-fi veneer and I remember finding these completely terrifying as a kid, mainly because they could stomp on you and crush you, basically like a real elephant would on a battlefield. I think it was the crush factor. That's something that Imperial Walkers and War Elephants have in common. There's also the fact that they're both mobile artillery units. The War Elephants carry towers packed with archers and javelin throwers, and the Imperial Walkers had lasers. And interestingly enough, the animators studied elephants in figuring out how to portray the Imperial Walker's stride. Mm. I just thought that was super interesting. That's super interesting. And yeah, like you said, when you start researching war elephants, you see them everywhere. And I saw some elephant graffiti this weekend and I took a photo of it and was like, I bet he'd make a good war elephant. Did you? <laughs> oh, we should put that on our Instagram. We'll put it on our Instagram. It's kind of a trippy looking war elephant. He's definitely drunk. Let's go back a little bit to the last time when we talked about Alexander the Great and King Porus at the Battle of Hydespes. We followed King Porus's war elephants to their end at the Siege of Pinda and discovered a clue to the possibly happier fate of one special elephant from that group. Ajax for life, guys. Ajax for life. You might see him, immortal Ajax, wandering around the bars. <laughs> he might be wearing a trench coat or something so that you don't know it's him. No, 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 no. He would not wear a trench coat. I have to just stop you right there. There is no way immortal Ajax is wearing a trench coat. No? Like, he might totally be in, like, just a button-down or a t-shirt and jeans, but he is not in a trench coat. I mean, all, my question is, is he trying to pass or is he really just being who he is? Okay, first off, if you're talking about in Bushwick, wearing a trench coat would signal him out more than anything. <laughs> That's true. It would be, he would be stand out more than if he was just an elephant without a trench coat. Second off, he's an immortal elephant with gold gilded tusks. Like, he ain't trying to pass as anything other than an immortal elephant with gold gilded tusks. Right. He is what he is. Anyway, we're going to continue to the next chapter in this epic story. And just as an aside, usually we consult a lot of different sources for our shows, and we did here too, but there was one book in particular that was so vivid and detailed and just excellent that we wound up relying on it a lot for this episode and the previous one. That book is called War Elephants, and it is by a man named John Kistler, who I am convinced is an elephant god. If you like this topic, we will link to it in the show notes, and you should really drop everything and go buy it. So the tradition of using elephants in war spread from India to Macedonian Greeks through one high-profile adopter, Alexander the Great. And from there, it spread to the Carthaginians and Romans through the influence of another early adopter. That person was Pyrrhus, the man who gave us the Pyrrhic victory. Pyrrhus of Epirus was the second cousin of Alexander the Great, born four years after Alexander's death, and he was king of Epirus, an ancient Greek state in the modern-day Balkans. Pyrrhus's hold on his kingdom was unsteady. He was deposed and reinstated twice before the age of 22, and in between, he fought in the later wars of the Diadochi alongside such greats as Antigonus the One-Eyed and his son, Demetrius the Besieger. 
I love saying those names. <laughs> Fun facts about Pyrrhus. His upper teeth looked like one continuous tooth with no spaces. A uni tooth. This is so weird. Also, he apparently could heal people's spleens by touching them with his right foot. And here is what Plutarch says. No, 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 no. Plutarch needs to lay off the elephant wine and get himself together. Plutarch was on acid because there's so much in this episode that Plutarch says that is clearly some kind of a trip. But I'm going to read you guys this because it's just it's just really crazy. He had not many teeth. This is about Pyrrhus in um, Life of Pyrrhus, which Plutarch wrote. He had not many teeth, but his upper jaw was one continuous bone on which the usual intervals between the teeth were indicated by slight depressions. People of a splenetic habit believed that he cured their ailment. He would sacrifice a white cock and, while the patient lay flat upon his back, would press gently with his right foot against the spleen. Nor was anyone so obscure or poor as not to get this healing service from him if he asked it. It is said further that the great toe of his right foot had a divine virtue. I mean, I really have to say that it's admirable how committed to equal health care for all Pyrrhus was when it came to the spleen. I mean, if you got a magic spleen, you might as well use it. Well, if you've got a magic right toe... You might as well use that. Because <laughs> that's what he was poking his the spleen with the right toe, and that was supposed to heal them. I mean, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Sometimes you just can't. I, I'm just going to keep going on with the story. I just can't, guys. <laughs> um, so Pyrrhus was restored to his kingdom with the help of powerful friends and allies he made during the wars of the Didaci. But Pyrrhus was not one to sit still. John Kistler, the elephant god, referred to him as the first true elephant adventurer. And one thing that stands out about his life is a tendency to jump at the chance to fight other people's battles. Kistler calls him restless and says he loved adventure and war. I mean, I kind of I kind of like him. He should have picked his battles better. That's the only thing. Yeah, but he's got that sort of like very determined stride to fight for everyone. And you just have to picture him as he's an elephant adventurer. He's very dashing. Mm. I kind of picture him as sort of a land pirate, like with a billowy shirt, kind of a cool beard. And I don't know. He's a land pirate. He's got elephants. He's not a land pirate. He's an elephant pirate. If you don't have a boat, you have an elephant. Around 280 BC, the southern Italian city of Tarentum had fallen out with a people they called the Wolves of Italy. These were none other than the Romans. Rome was nowhere near an empire yet, but they were already proving themselves to be unpleasant neighbors. Surprise, surprise. Tarentum went to war with them over a treaty violation and asked Pyrrhus to come and fight on their side. Intrigued by the idea of gaining power in Italy himself and egged on by the Oracle of Delphi, Pyrrhus showed up with 3,000 cavalry, 2,000 archers, 20,000 infantry, and 20 elephants. My faves. Kistler states he was the first person ever to invade a country by sea with a ship full of elephants. The Romans attacked immediately. Pyrrhus held back his elephants until a crucial point in the battle, and when he finally let him loose, it was a slaughter. The Romans didn't have the Macedonian Sarissas and Copais. They were not lucky like Alexander the Great. They were armed only with gladii, which were short, double-edged, pointy stabby swords that would have been totally useless against elephants. The elephants, meanwhile, carried war towers with archers inside, and the Romans had never seen elephants before. The elephants trampled many beneath their feet, and Pyrrhus won a pretty big victory. The Romans fought Pyrrhus and his elephants again the next year, and in this battle, they showed up with 300 ox-drawn carts full of a cornucopia of weapons. 
Among them, swinging poles with tridents and swords attached to the ends, caltrops and grappling hooks lit on fire, and crowds of archers and slingers. So these are basically carts chock full of elephant death implements, which to be honest with you, Jenny, is the only way I go into war with elephants. With with a cart chock full of elephant death implements? Yeah. See, my, my opinion is you shouldn't have a whole cart full of weapons. You should just have a few of the right weapons. And in my opinion, the Romans were totally overthinking it. See, I disagree. I think if you aren't sure what will kill the elephants, you got to bring everything you can to the battlefield. So this strategy makes total sense to me. The Romans were like good Boy Scouts. They were prepared. But unfortunately for them, Pyrrhus and his elephants took one look at those wagons and decided, nope. The Romans put their wagons on the edges of their army, which is where Pyrrhus had stationed his elephants at the first battle. This time, he sent his elephants up the middle, bypassing the elephant death wagons altogether. So Pyrrhus won his first two battles against the Romans, those of Heraclea and Asculum, but those victories were expensive. He lost a lot of troops and some of his precious elephants, and he didn't have that many to begin with, only about 20. Plutarch, who, let's face it, yet again, was probably tripping, gives us this famous quote, another victory like this and I shall be ruined. And that's where the idea of a Pyrrhic victory comes from. It's getting a victory, but at what cost? At the cost of potentially losing the war. Right. It's a victory that's so expensive that it's pointless. Elephants played a major role in the third iconic battle between Pyrrhus and the ancient Romans. In 275 BC, five years after he came to Rome, Pyrrhus was winning the Battle of Maleventum when one of two things happened. Both are chaos factor elephant fails. Both are equally well attested in the historical record, so we don't know which one is actually true. Right. So according to one story, the Romans coated some pigs with grease and pitch, set them on fire, and drove the flaming animals toward Pyrrhus's elephant corps. The burning pigs ran between the elephant's legs, panicking them into turning back and trampling their own troops. So that is one version. The second version goes like this. One of Pyrrhus's elephants was a female, a mother with a calf. The calf went into battle with its mother, and this didn't go so well, because the spear hit the calf in the head, and it turned around and ran back, trumpeting loudly. The mother turned and rushed after her offspring, trampling Pyrrhus's troops. The Romans took advantage of the confusion, aiming their javelins at the elephants until the entire corps frenzied and turned back on its own battle line. So which version is true? There are points both for and against the mother elephant story. What makes it unlikely is that female elephants were almost never used in battle. The males were more aggressive had tusks, and in typical sexist fashion, ancient writers claimed that the female elephant was far inferior and less courageous than the male. Why would Pyrrhus have a female elephant with a calf? However, what actually rings true about this story is that this is exactly how a mother elephant would behave. If you did want to send your mother elephant into battle, you'd have to send the calf in with her because she wouldn't tolerate being separated. And if the baby bolted, the mother would immediately bolt after, regardless of her training. But the pig story is also not as outlandish as you'd think. In fact, the old flaming pig gambit was pretty well known in the ancient world. King Porus himself was said to have clued Alexander in to elephant pig phobia after the Battle of the Hydaspes, even holding a demonstration for him on the banks of the river. And I'm assuming he did this in a stretcher while he was still recovering from all those javelin wounds. Because he was badass. Yeah, he was a badass and he had a really sweet friend in Ajax. And at the Siege of Megara in 266 BC, the defending army supposedly set some pigs on fire and tossed them off the walls directly on the heads of attacking elephants, which also caused a stampede. So this was a technique that was kind of, it was out there. People knew about it. And I feel like there's another siege um, 
think it's the siege of Rochester Castle where they actually like, because when you set pigs on fire, because there's so much fat in them, Mm -hmm. they produce like a, like they burn really hot. So you're kind of like flaming missiles. And what they did at Rochester Castle in England is they put them under the walls and then they, they actually melted the stone. So that's the kind of heat you're talking about. That is fascinating, Jen. When did that happen? I'm not exactly sure of the date. Um, I can put it in the show notes, but I don't know offhand. I've been to Rochester Castle and my husband had reminded me about this when I was talking about the wild stampeding pigs. Flaming pigs, you guys. Mm -hmm. Don't forget about that if you're ever in a war situation. Pig fat will melt most things. (laughs) (laughs) And also if you're in a siege situation, which is what happened at Rochester Castle, the smell of the pigs will drive the people inside crazy. So why didn't we talk about this and how to survive a siege? Well, because the Rochester Castle siege happened in the Middle Ages, not in ancient history. Oh, right. Okay, yes. Ancient history fangirl, not medieval history fangirl. Although that would also be a really cool podcast. I mean, we might go into the Middle Ages. You never know. We might take forays there, occasional forays. So both of these stories are backed up by at least circumstantial archaeological evidence. A coin minted in the region depicts a pig on one side and an elephant on the other, and a plate from the same period shows a female elephant carrying a tower, with a calf trailing behind, holding its mother's tail. I mean, that just breaks my heart. It's so cute, but also the reality, like, after researching for the last episode of the life of that poor baby elephant just makes me so sad. It's a baby! I know. So these both date from around the same time as the battle itself and they tell us that both stories are very old but they don't prove which one is true either way it's likely that pyrrhus's loss at the battle of maleventum was tied to a giant elephant fail of some kind three fateful elephant fails led to pyrrhus's death he died like he'd lived in a dramatic fashion while fighting someone else's battle and it went down like this I mean, let's just be honest, Jenny, that is a pretty baller pirate way to go out. Right? Well, Pyrrhus was an elephant land pirate. (laughs) After the Battle of Maleventum in 275 BC, Pyrrhus finally cut his losses and got out of Italy. About three years later in 272, he was asked to invade the city of Argos to intervene in a civic dispute. An enemy of his, Antigonus, whom he'd just run out of Macedon, was closing in on the city as well, and Pyrrhus rarely saw a fight he didn't like, so he said, "Uh uh-huh, yep, that is a thing I'm gonna do. And according to Plutarch, all the signs pointed to a victory, and this is Plutarch's idea of, of a sign of victory. Quote, Pyrrhus himself had a significant portent, For the heads of his sacrificed cattle, though they already lay apart from the bodies, were seen to put out their tongues and lick up their own gore. And that just sounds like a terrible trip, Plutarch. It really does. Also, like, how is that a good sign or a bad sign? It's just a gross thing. I question that this is anything but a gross sign. Exactly. So Antigonus held the garrison by the time Pyrrhus got there. But Pyrrhus had allies in the city, and they opened the gate for him at night. So this seemed like it should have been an easy victory, guys. But hold on, hold your wine, Pyrrhus is here. (laughs) Pyrrhus found that the gate wasn't high enough to let his elephants pass with the towers on their backs. I mean, again, maybe that's a sign you shouldn't bring an elephant into the city, but what do I know? So he had the towers taken off, and the elephants led through, and then the towers were put back on, amidst much noise and confusion. Now, at this point... Especially if you listen to our Street Cleaners of Carthage episode of How to Survive a Siege, you may be asking yourself why Pyrrhus felt the need to bring war elephants into a city under siege. 
Pyrrhus was looking at street-by-street fighting in narrow alleys with people raining missiles down on the heads of his troops. Not the greatest environment for elephants. This was elephant fail number one that led to Pyrrhus's death. And here's an account of what it was like in that city, what the fighting was like. Accordingly, Pyrrhus led on faster, pushing along the horsemen in front of him, who were making their way with difficulty among the water conduits of which the city is full, and were in peril of their lives from them. And I wonder, Jenny, if those water conduits that the city is full of are actually aqueducts. So they really might have made it really difficult for the elephants, depending on how tall they were. Yeah, that's a great point. And I don't know. I'm not sure if they mean water conduits like these were just sort of canals or if they were aqueducts. But either way, they would have been a giant pain. Yeah. And now, in this night battle, there was great uncertainty as to what commands were given and how the commands were carried out. Men straggled and lost their way among the narrow streets, and generalship was of no avail owing to the darkness, confused shouting, and confined spaces. So yeah, note to Pyrrhus, your elephants go on the outside of the city that you're besieging, not the inside. <laughs> Lesson number one learned, Pyrrhus ordered a retreat and sent a messenger to his son, who was waiting outside of the city, to pull down the city walls so his troops could more easily withdraw. His son misunderstood that order and rushed to the gate with the rest of the elephants and troops to try to get inside the city and help his father. And this created chaos. Because now there were troops going in and troops trying to go out, all believing they were under Pyrrhus's orders, and in the narrow streets, none could pass. To make matters worse, the largest of Pyrrhus's elephants fell in front of the gate and lay there, trapping everyone else inside. Guys, this is epic elephant fail number two. Meanwhile, yet another elephant, one of those brought into the city for no reason, caused even more chaos. And the name of this elephant has come down to us. This is actually pretty rare. We have Ajax, we have this elephant, and then there's going to be another elephant whose name came down to us that we're going to talk about later. This particular elephant's name was Nikon. Nikon's driver was wounded in the fighting and fell off his back, and Nikon wandered the city in grief and terror looking for him. And this is what happened. Quote, Dashing in the face of those who were trying to get out, he crowded friends and foe alike together in a promiscuous throng until, having found the body of his master, he took it up with his proboscis, remember the proboscis is the trunk, laid it across his two tusks and turned back as if crazed, overthrowing and killing those who came in his way. Thus crushed and matted together, not a man of them could act at all for himself, but the whole multitude, bolted together as it were into one body, kept rolling and swaying this way and that. Little fighting could be done against those of the enemy who were continually being caught up into their ranks or attacking them from the rear, and they wrought most harm to themselves. For when a man had drawn his sword or poised his spear, he could not recover or sheathe his weapon again, but it would pass through those who stood in its way, and so they died from one another's blows. And this would be elephant fail number three. And in the middle of this chaos, Pyrrhus was trapped in the streets with the rest of his troops. He fell into single combat with a young soldier whose mother was watching from the roof of a house. The mother threw a tile at the king, knocking him from his horse and hitting him below the helmet, breaking a vertebrae in his neck. Yeah, so I think it's worth noting here that sometimes in these battles, chaos is the great equalizer. Here's Pyrrhus, who is the noted elephant adventurer and land pirate, a very experienced fighter who'd probably fought hand-to-hand and won thousands of times. And he's basically done in by an inexperienced kid and his mom. According to Plutarch's latest trip, this didn't kill Pyrrhus. His sight blurred and he dropped the reins and he fell slowly off his horse. An enemy soldier dragged him into the doorway and he was just about to recover when this soldier drew a sword and cut the king's head off. 
And according to Plutarch, our main chronicler of this story, Pyrrhus gave the soldier such a terrible look as he started that final death blow that the soldier's hands trembled and he botched the beheading, cutting Pyrrhus along the chin and mouth and also severing his head only slowly and with great difficulty. So that, my friends, is how Pyrrhus of Epirus, the war-loving land pirate adventurer king who gave us the term Pyrrhic victory, met his end. Long may he and his unitooth and his magic toe and his commitment to universal spleen health care and his crap victories and his many elephant fails be remembered. We salute you, Pyrrhus. We do. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hello, everyone. Stakuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So, Pyrrhus didn't just introduce elephants to Rome, he also brought them to Carthage. The Carthaginians first saw war elephants in Sicily, fighting against Pyrrhus between 278 and 276 BC, and they decided that if Pyrrhus could do it, so could they. The Carthaginians were a wealthy, powerful society, older than the Roman Empire, and for a while, Rome's most deadly rival for power in the Mediterranean. And Jenny, I keep going back to the Aeneid. One of the things in the Aeneid is like it attempts to give the cause of the Punic Wars and why Rome and Carthage hated each other so much. And the reason for that was Aeneas, who was originally from Troy and eventually founds the city of Rome, had a very illustrious affair with the Queen of Carthage, a woman named Dido. And when Aeneas decides he's going to leave, she's like, don't go without me, take me with you. And he's like, ah, no, later. So as his ships are sailing away, she lights a giant funeral pyre and she curses Aeneas and she curses his descendants and throws herself upon the pyre and thus begins the Punic Wars. That's actually in real life how the Punic Wars ended with Hasdrubal's wife jumping into a fire 
It is. I mean, that maybe it's not so far-fetched. Maybe one of these is really embellished, or maybe they both were. The Aeneid is definitely, as we said, the aggrandizing text that Augustus commissioned to trace his line back to Venus and the fall of Troy and the founding of Rome. Right. So that's definitely fictionalized. How much of Hasdrubal is fictionalized? We've talked before about how trustworthy the ancient sources may or may not have been, but sometimes you see these stories crop up again and again in different guises and just sort of echo each other among the ancient sources. And you got to wonder where these are coming from. But anyway, let's get back to the story we were trying to tell about the Carthaginians. Yeah. Let's let's move away from mythology, even though, you know, can't help ourselves. So the Carthaginians fought the Punic Wars with Rome for 118 years. Guys, that is way too long to be fighting. Starting in 264 BC. In the 12 to 14 years between their first introduction to war elephants and their first serious tangling with Rome, the Carthaginians started to source their own war elephants and to put them to use. So right about now, we're just going to take a little detour and talk about the species of elephant used in battle. This is relevant, I promise. And it means we're going to skip forward in time a little bit. Bear with me here to 217 BC, about 47 years after the start of the Punic Wars and to a region in modern-day Syria. And I'm speaking, of course, you all know this, of the Battle of Raphia. And if you don't know this, we're going to tell you about it. We're going to tell you about it anyway, so strap in. <laughs> strap in, guys. Get your war elephant, get in your, get in your little seat, we're going. Get your cocktail out. <laughs> your elephant-approved cocktail. Your, your human gall cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> and and your battle helmet. Get that out So the ba- strap in. So the Battle of Raphia took place between Ptolemy IV of Egypt and Antiochus III, the inheritors of two kingdoms created after the War of the Diadochi, because everything goes back to the War of the Diadochi. Basically. And that was the war between Alexander the Great's successors. This battle is important because it's the first example of two different species of war elephants fighting each other. Two species enter one species leaves. In this battle, Antiochus used Asian elephants and Ptolemy used African elephants. The sources are really clear on this and also clear that the elephants fought each other hand to hand. We have an account from a contemporary author about what happens when these two species of elephants face off in a cage match, and it is probably not what you think. This is from Polybius. A few of Ptolemy's African elephants ventured too close with those of the enemy, and now the men in the towers on the back of these beasts made a gallant fight of it striking with their pikes at close quarters and wounding each other, while the elephants themselves fought still better, putting forth their whole strength and meeting forehead to forehead. The way in which these animals fight is as follows, with their tusks firmly interlocked as they shove with all their might, each trying to force the other to give ground, until the one who proves strongest pushes aside the other's trunk, and then, when he has made him turn, he has him in the flank. He gores him with his tusks as a bull does with his horns. Most of Ptolemy's African elephants, however, decline the combat, as is the habit of African elephants. For unable to stand the smell and the trumpeting of the Indian elephants, and terrified, I suppose, also by their great size and strength, they at once turn tail and take to flight before they get near them. So when you hear this passage, you must be asking yourself, like we are at this moment, exactly what Polybius is smoking. I mean, maybe the same thing Plutarch is. Maybe. I mean, everybody knows that African elephants are the largest land mammals on Earth, weighing around 13,000 pounds, standing about 11 feet tall at the shoulder. Asian elephants, which is what Antiochus was using, are noticeably smaller, about 1,000 pounds lighter and two feet shorter 
at the shoulder. So what is going on here? Why is Polybius saying that it was the African elephants who were terrified and intimidated by the much larger Asian elephants? So the answer appears to be that when the ancient sources talk about African elephants, they aren't referring to the ones we usually think of, the biggest species of elephant on earth. There are in fact two subspecies of elephants in Africa. There's the African bush elephant, and then there's the African forest elephant, which is smaller than both the African and Asian species at about 6,000 pounds and eight feet tall at the shoulder. African forest elephants are most likely what Ptolemy used at the Battle of Raphia. Today, you don't really find them outside of West and Central Africa, but they used to range into North Africa, so they would have been known to these ancient cultures. In fact, there are lots of ancient accounts of generals and kings going hunting for war elephants in Northern Africa, and it's always, quote, in the forest. Oh, that's fascinating, Jenny. Yeah. Most of the time, when we're talking war elephants, what we're talking about is the Asian elephants. This is not true of the Carthaginians, however, which makes sense because Carthage was in northern Africa. It was in North Africa, yeah. Yeah. Um, This savvy merchant society realized that it was going to be way cheaper to source their elephants close to home than to ship them in from India. They hired Numidian mercenaries to both capture their elephants and serve as mahouts. So... When we're talking about Carthaginian war elephants, what we usually mean is the smaller African forest elephant. The Carthaginians were just getting started with elephants when the First Punic War began. Their first few times using them against the Romans was disastrous. But then the Carthaginians did what they did best, which is hire outside help. So they brought in a Spartan named Xanthippus. I just want to call him Xanthopotamus, but his name is Xanthippus. (laughs) His name is actually Xanthippus, but if we could call him Xanthopotamus the whole time, that would make me smile. I mean, I don't know how other people would feel about that, but I guess it's our podcast. It's our podcast. If we want to call him Xanthopotamus, we're going to do it. And this is what happens when you get your history from fangirls, not historians. Right. So Xanthopotamus the Spartan knew a thing or two about elephants, Jenny. Right. So Xanthopotamus the Smart, <laughs> the Smartan. <laughs> <laughs> He was smart, and he was a Spartan. He was a Smartan. <laughs> Xanthopotamus the Spartan had fought against Pyrrhus of Epirus himself and had seen what war elephants could do. During the Battle of Tunis in 255 BC, the Carthaginians hired him to fight for them against Rome, led by the consul Marcus Regulus, who was looking to make a name for himself before the next Roman elections. Jenny, I feel like a lot of Roman history is really driven by men who want to make a name for themselves before the next election. <clears throat> Caesar. <coughs> So so Regulus did make a name for himself, but it was not exactly how he wanted. Xanthopotamus put a hundred elephants in the field, smaller African forest elephants. But Regulus's cavalry didn't know the difference. The horses weren't used to elephants and they bolted in fear. This left Regulus's infantry exposed to the elephants. And these were hardly as lucky as Alexander the Great's infantry. They did not have his nine lives of luck. So here's what happened according to Polybius. Most of the Romans were trampled to death by the enormous weight of the elephants. The rest were shot down in their ranks by the numerous cavalry. And there were only a few who attempted to save themselves by flight. But the flatness of the country was unfavorable to escape in this manner. Some of the fugitives were destroyed by the elephants and the cavalry. While those who fled with the general Regulus, amounting to perhaps 500, were after a short pursuit made prisoners with him to a man. So the Carthaginians captured Marcus Regulus. And here is what they did to him in a particularly gruesome example of death by elephant, according to Diodorus. And here's another moment where I am just going to go ahead and gently suggest that my dad turn down the volume. Just turn down the volume, dad. Go get a snack. 
this might be a moment where you make yourself a cup of of tea and then come back. So and this is a quote. Learn the fate that befell Marcus Regulus, the Roman general, after his capture by the Sicils. I'm just going to assume that the Sicils are the Carthaginians. They cut off his eyelids with a knife and left his eyes open. Then, oh having... no, 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 no! <laughs> I warned you. You might have had to stop and go get some tea while I read this. I need some elephant grade uh, alcohol. I think they cut off his eyelids with a knife and left his eyes open. Then, having penned him in a very small and narrow hut, they goaded to madness a wild elephant and incited it to draw him down under itself and mangle him. Thus, the great general, as though driven by an avenging fury, breathed his last and died a most wretched death. If you listen to Street Cleaners of Carthage, you might have ended that episode feeling kind of bad for the Carthaginians. Don't. The Carthaginians had some nasty habits, including child sacrifice and crucifying their own generals when they lost battles. And sometimes they weren't even that nice to generals who won. Xanthopotamus, or Xanthippus, but obviously, guys, is Xanthopotamus. It's now Xanthopotamus down through time. So Xanthopotamus, the great general who had led the Carthaginian army, won much renown for his victories on behalf of the Carthaginians, and his employers became jealous. According to Diodorus, they deliberately put him on a leaky boat on his way back to Sparta, and it sank in the Adriatic Sea, thus proving an ancient history fangirl rule to live by. If the Carthaginians ever try to hire you to fight their battles, just say no. Worst client ever. There are no, there's no good Prosecco, there's no good Cheetos, there's nothing, guys. Prosecco and Cheetos in the gift basket. That That is obviously what you need to put in all of your gift baskets. <laughs> Don't go for high-end cheese and wine. Just know your audience. For me, Prosecco, <laughs> yes, but also I'm kind of into the summer sausage and like all the fancy cheeses. And um, I don't care how fancy your cheese is, you guys. Do not work for the Carthaginians. I mean, I'd like some nice some nice chocolate, guys. I'm telling you, Jen, it's not going to be worth it. I don't know. Maybe if it's really boozy. Telling you right now. All right. See, you're half you're halfway to working with them already. They they emailed you, didn't they? <laughs> I mean, they just it was like a, it was just an exploratory email asking me if my services might be for hire. Did they say that they weren't going to pay you very much, but that you'd get a lot of exposure? There was a mention of a gift basket that would be arriving tomorrow. Jen, do not be seduced. Okay, I will turn it away. <laughs> one of the more famous elephants in Carthaginian war was tied to one of the most famous Carthaginians, and that would be Hannibal Barca, the general who single-handedly started the Second Punic War. So Hannibal was the son of Hamilcar Barca, and I literally can't see Hamilcar or nothing Hamilton, um, but they're not in any way related. Hamilton Barca. <laughs> Hamilton Barca, could you imagine? I, I can imagine, I'm imagining it right now. <laughs> There's fan art somewhere of that. So Hamilcar had a giant chip on his shoulder about the First Punic War, and he drummed his hatred of Rome into his sons. When Hannibal was as young as nine, his father dangled him over a roaring sacrificial fire and made him swear that he would never be a friend of Rome. Hannibal's father spent decades expanding Carthage's territory in Gaul, and Hannibal grew up doing that with his dad. Hamilcar referred to his three sons as his lion's brood and used to regularly just sort of say things like, these are the lion cubs I am rearing for the destruction of Rome, which makes it kind of hard if you're Hannibal to just go off and be an accountant or something. You 
you're just kind of being groomed for this one thing. Yeah, totally. After Hamilcar died, Hannibal took over his father's army at the age of 26. And he picked a fight with Rome by besieging one of the local towns allied to the empire. And this kicked off the Second Punic War. Hannibal's main claim to fame is crossing the Alps. He did this in 218 BC, along with 38,000 infantry, 8,000 cavalry, and 38 elephants. His exact route over the Alps is still a mystery today, but the trip was so difficult that much of his original army didn't survive. However, most of the ancient sources say that all of his elephants lived, although they were in bad shape coming down from the mountains due to the arduous journey. Before his death by elephant fail, Pyrrhus had published a memoir and a book of war strategy. Hannibal had read this book studiously and soaked up his elephant tips. Pliny the Elder tells us that Hannibal pitted his Roman prisoners against his elephants, telling them that if they could kill the elephants in hand-to-hand combat, he'd set them free. One of them did actually kill an elephant, and Pliny tells us that Hannibal had the man killed anyway, because that's how the Carthaginians operate. Yeah, sounds about right. So, however, Hannibal's first winter in the Italian peninsula was a tough one, and only one of his elephants survived. That elephant was the one Hannibal rode into battle himself, and his name was Surus, the Syrian. He was thought to be an Asian elephant, descended from those that participated in the wars of the Diadochi. Surus was the only elephant survivor of the Punic Wars, eventually emerging a battle-scarred old veteran like Hannibal. Surus only had one tusk, making him an even more fitting companion to Hannibal, who had only one eye. By the end of the Second Punic War, elephants were an integral part of the Carthaginian war machine. However, Roman treaty stripped the Carthaginians of their elephants in the aftermath of the war. And when the Romans returned in the Third Punic War to lay siege to Carthage and burned it to the ground, legend says that the Carthaginians, knowing their city was doomed, called their vanished elephants by name in the hope that the gods would bring them back from the grave to defend them one last time. But the gods disappointed them, and the Carthaginians were slaughtered and sold into slavery. Their city was reduced to a pile of burning rubble, and they soon followed their war elephants into the mists of history. That is deeply depressing, Jenny. Just trying to think of a way to just segue that. I'm sorry, did you expect a happy end to this story? Because <laughs> that is not that is not our stock and trade, Jen. So We're going to move on to war elephants in ancient Rome, and the ancient Romans had a distinctive attitude towards war elephants. And to illustrate that, we're going to backtrack a little bit. Now we're going to go back to 251 BC. And during the First Punic War, the Roman commander, Metellus, won a great victory against the Carthaginian army at the Battle of Panormus in Sicily. Among the spoils of war were somewhere between 100 and 140 elephants and 10 surviving Mahouts. Metellus held a triumph to celebrate his victory and paraded his captured elephants through the streets of Rome. It's said that the beasts panicked and became violent during the parade, and Metellus told the captured Mahouts that any who could get them to chill a bit would win their freedom. These experienced elephant handlers, who, let's face it, were probably worth their weight in gold, each one of these guys, managed to calm the elephants down, and they continued on their way to the Roman amphitheater. Here again, we're going to warn Jenny's dad, Captain Tom, and anyone else who might not want to hear about animal cruelty, that maybe you should, you know, turn this down for a second, get a cup of tea, maybe get an elephant-sized cocktail, and um, then come back in just a few minutes, okay? So Varius tells us they fought in the circus, and the they they're referring to is the elephants, and the circus they're referring to is not the big top circus, it is the Circus Maximus, and that they were slain with javelins for want of some better method of disposing of them, as the people neither like to keep the elephants 
nor yet to give them to kings. Piso tells us only that they were brought into the circus, and for the purpose of increasing the feeling of contempt towards them, they were driven all round the area of that place by workmen, who had nothing but spears blunted at the point. The authors, who are of opinion that they were not killed, do not, however, inform us of how they were afterwards disposed of. This is a giant waste. About 140 highly trained, extremely valuable war elephants may be slaughtered, definitely abused in a circus spectacle because the Romans didn't realize what they had. The ancient Romans had met elephants before fighting against Pyrrhus. And after their very first encounter with elephants in that battle with Pyrrhus in 280 BC, Roman legionaries started contemptuously referring to King Pyrrhus's legendary elephants as Lusanian cows after the region where the battle took place. Even so, a few more losses to Pyrrhus Pyrrhus's elephants had the Romans hiding behind city walls for years in fear of facing them again. And many scholars don't really think the Romans used war elephants or held them in very high esteem. And there's a reason for that. A lot of Roman generals' accounts, like Caesar's accounts of his campaigns in Gaul and Britain, don't mention using them. And the ancient Roman generals were eager to glorify their troops, whose loyalty they had to maintain. The army was known to get very nasty when it didn't feel appreciated enough. I mean, we talked about this a lot in the Praetorian Guard episode. But literally, the support of the troops could could make you emperor. Or make you dead. Either or. If you didn't have it, it would make you dead. But the Romans did use elephants, and they did respect them a great deal. And one way you can tell that that's true is by looking at their treaties with their defeated enemies. The ancient Romans treated elephants the way we would treat nuclear arms today. They were very interested in preventing the accumulation and spread of war elephants among their enemies, and their treaties often included a non-elephant proliferation clause. They pulled this on the Carthaginians after the Second Punic War, which is why Carthage had no elephants in the Third Punic War. And beyond that, the Romans got good at both fighting elephants and using them. They improved a lot from their super-prepared wagon days against Pyrrhus. One noteworthy example is the Battle of Zamba. This was in 202 BC, the tail end of the Second Punic War. Hannibal had crossed the Alps 16 years earlier, and he was still knocking around in Italy, wreaking havoc. He'd killed 25% of the Italian peninsula's population, destroyed 400 towns, and wrecked about 50% of the farmland in the area by now. When the Roman general, Scipio Africanus, decided to turn the tables and invade Carthage, Hannibal's hometown. Hannibal hurried home and faced Scipio's army at the Battle of Zama around modern-day Tunisia. By this time, most of Hannibal's elephants had died, except maybe the legendary Surus. He quickly sent out hunters to find more and managed to capture about 80 elephants in the forest. African forest elephants. But the thing is, it takes years to properly train a war elephant, maybe even decades. These elephants were untrained. And as we all know, an untrained elephant is as dangerous to your own troops as to your enemies. So it was looking like Hannibal was staring down the barrel of an elephant fail. Even so, he forged ahead. Hannibal put his elephants in the front of his cavalry, which was a typical way of arranging them, and Scipio lined up his infantry. And Scipio was super smart here. Usually, the Roman infantry would be arranged in a close checkerboard formation, but this time Scipio stood them up in rows with three long corridors between them that stretched from the front of the line to the back. And he put a few shallow rows of lightly armed men in front of the gaps so that Hannibal's army wouldn't see the gaps. Hannibal's plan for his poorly trained elephants was to send them charging into the Roman troops unencumbered by armor or towers. Presumably, this was a simple task for the elephants. They could use their natural trampling abilities and wouldn't have to do anything complicated. But when Hannibal ordered his elephants forward, Scipio's army made noise. They blew trumpets and horns, and those who didn't have trumpets screamed at the tops of their lungs 
lungs. With over 30,000 men making as much noise as they could, the untrained elephants freaked out. Some of them turned back and trampled their own troops, and others galloped forward. Scipio's army opened their corridors and sent them running harmlessly off the battlefield. I mean, those poor elephants. I know, you gotta feel bad for them. They must have been really scared. I know. So Hannibal lost that battle, and he had to flee from Carthage, his own country, because he'd lost, and you know what the Carthaginians did to the generals who lost. Crucifixion. You can really see Scipio taking advantage of the fact that these elephants weren't well-trained here. This may not have worked against trained war elephants who were used to the sounds of battle. So the Romans captured about 69 war elephants that day, and eventually they learned to use elephants to their advantage. They also realized that the Carthaginians weren't the only ones who could source their own elephants. The Romans made allies in Numidia, a Berber kingdom, that supplied the Roman army with a steady stream of elephants. And it's actually kind of funny because sometimes you would see it wasn't just the Romans with Nubidia. It, it was other places too. You would sometimes see that conquering kings would demand tribute from the people they'd conquered. And sometimes the tribute would include elephants. And you would sometimes see the people paying the tribute, the defeated parties, paying it in untrained war elephants, which I think is kind of a sneaky way to undermine your <laughs> people who <laughs> defeated you by giving them elephants that they don't know how to use and that need maybe 10 years of training before they're really usable. That would be my gambit. <laughs> so the general Pompey, who was the great colleague and later rival of Julius Caesar, I'm just going to call him Caesar's frenemy, and a brilliant general in his own right, first fought elephants in 81 BC in Africa. Pompey had several noteworthy elephant fails. After his victory in Africa, he captured some elephants and planned to show them off in a triumph or a self-aggrandizing parade that ancient Romans had to celebrate their victories. The plan was to ride in on a chariot pulled by elephants, but there was a problem. The elephants wouldn't fit through the city gates because remember, we've talked about this, city gates and elephants don't mix. Yeah, you keep your elephant on the outside. Exactly. So instead, Pompey had to get out of his chariot and walk in his own parade. And this was a pretty humiliating epic fail for him. Pompey's elephant fails, the noteworthy ones that I'm highlighting here, are mostly public relations fails. And the next one is a really, really striking story and also extremely disturbing, possibly one of the most disturbing ones in the episode. So just a heads up, Dad. Now's the time, you know, just take a moment for self-care, maybe condition your mustache, um, you know, whatever it is you, you do for self-care, dad. You don't need to tell me. I don't ask questions. Yeah, get a nice face mask out. Just take a break, turn down the volume for a minute, and then come back. All right, so here we go. The ancient Romans would often kill captured elephants in their amphitheaters. And again, this seems just like a giant waste. But it was also a morale move. Ancient generals were teaching the public that these animals were not invincible. So in 55 BC, which is 26 years after his first elephant fighting experience, Pompey threw a lavish show. And the main event would involve 20 war elephants pitted against a group of criminals in a mock battle. And this is a common way of executing low-ranking criminals in ancient Rome by pitting them against wild animals or trained gladiators and killing them in the amphitheater for the amusement of crowds. In this instance, the program involved letting the elephants trample the criminals and then having professional Numidian elephant handlers execute the elephants for the enjoyment of the crowd. So this didn't go as planned. And heads up, this is where the really disturbing stuff starts. The elephants gave their Numidian killers some trouble. One of the elephants, hamstrung and crawling on 
its knees, tried to fight back. The Numidians could only kill it by stabbing it in the eye with a javelin. After that happened, according to Pliny, quote, all the elephants together attempted to break out from the iron barricades which surrounded them, and this caused anxiety among the people. But Pompey's elephants, when they had lost hope of escape, sought the compassion of the crowd and supplicated it with a kind of lamentation. There resulted so much grief among the people that they forgot the generosity lavished in their honor by General Pompey and bursting into tears all arose together and invoked curses on Pompey. So the reason I wanted to tell this story, as disturbing as it is, is that it's also really emotional and striking, and it also illustrates how incredibly smart and emotionally intelligent the elephants are. They knew what was going on. They saw that the crowd had some kind of say in their fate, and they worked together both to try to break out and to appeal to the crowd's better nature. That's really fascinating. I remember when I first started to like do a little bit of research into elephants and it's because of this book I was working on, which was about sort of elephant consciousness. Mm. Um, It was a science fiction book, but it sort of posited that like there's so much untapped intelligence in elephants. Yeah. What's the name of that book? Uh, Blue Remembered Earth. We'll put it in the show notes. It's a really, if you're a science fiction fan, um, it's a really good book and there's sort of space adventure excitement. So that's another like Star Wars, another example of elephants in in science fiction. Mm-hmm. And also to show that the Romans were not without compassion and pity, although it took a lot to rouse that pity, Pompey's use of elephants only resulted in his own embarrassment, and his public image took a big hit. People in ancient Rome believed that elephants could understand speech and could even be reasonably persuaded to do things. There was a belief that you could talk an elephant onto a boat or a raft by reassuring it verbally that it would get where it was going safely. I mean, that's literally how my husband talks me into getting on a plane. (laughs) (laughs) Julius Caesar learned from Pompey's mistakes. He used elephants in battle, too. And one of the first instances that we have of that comes from his wars in Britain, where he terrified an entire British tribe into fleeing a battlefield by showing them a single elephant with a war tower on its back. About five years later, Caesar tangled in Africa with Pompey's father-in-law, Scipio. Not that Scipio. Different Scipio. Scipio was joined by his ally, King Juba of Numidia, and 64 elephants. And these elephants were newly captured, which we all know is an elephant fail waiting to happen. Caesar trained his troops specially to face elephants, using circus elephants shipped in from Italy. And among his specially trained troops were a corps of slingers. Slingers threw rocks with slings. And this might sound like a really basic and ineffective childish weapon, but in fact, slingers were extremely deadly. The stones they used were sometimes made of lead. They were also sometimes made of clay and actual stone. And if you see examples of these... Some of them look like bullets, and that's exactly what they killed like. The Roman Vegetius said, uh, Stones kill without mangling the body, and the contusion is mortal without loss of blood. Ancient Roman military slingers could hit a target at 600 feet. So during the battle, most of Pompey's untrained elephants fled under a hail of slings and arrows. One of the elephants barged into Caesar's camp, however, and here's what happened. So Captain Tom, if you put a face mask on, now's the time to go wash it off. My dad definitely is not wearing a face mask, although it's an amusing picture. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Just turn the sound down for a minute. Maybe go make some popcorn. Popcorn's good. So now that Captain Tom's turned the volume down, we're going to get into this, guys. An elephant maddened by the pain of a wound it had received had attacked an unarmed camp attendant, pinning him underfoot, and then knelt upon him. And now, with its trunk erect and swaying and trumpeting loudly, it was crushing him to death with its own weight. This was more than the soldier could bear. 
When it observed him coming towards it with its weapon poised to strike, the elephant abandoned the corpse, encircling the soldier with its trunk, and it lifted him into the air. The soldier hewed with his sword again and again, with all the strength he could muster. The resulting pain caused the elephant to drop the soldier, wheel round, and with a shrill trumpetings, make all speed to rejoin its fellows. Caesar brought all 64 back alive to Rome, and his triumph was a deliberate up yours to Pompey. Caesar deliberately walked in his parade to the Capitol steps amidst a crowd of elephants, each one holding a torch in its trunk. And that is just, that is such a Caesar thing to do. It totally, it's, Caesar was such a gangster. He really was. He was an ancient world gangster. He was a gangster. We have to do an episode about how Julius Caesar was a gangster. Mm. And there's also a podcast called The Life of Caesar, which is all about the Caesars, which sounds fascinating. I haven't listened to it yet, but um, I bet they get into how gangster he is. So the elephants after that were most likely well-treated. There were games after Caesar's triumph and the elephants participated in it but it's unlikely any were actually killed. The poet Juvenal made reference to Caesar's herd well after this, and this same herd was mentioned almost 32 years after Caesar's assassination in the custody of Augustus, his successor. We're told that this population of elephants formed a breeding stock that survived for generations in the possession of various emperors, but they were rarely used for battle. You do find mention of elephants used for entertainment, For example, the Emperor Nero apparently had one that could walk on a tightrope, and Germanicus used to put his elephants in dresses and have them dance to music and toss flowers. I bet his family loved that and thought it was really sweet. He had a lot of little kids, you know. You have to keep them occupied in an an age of no TV somehow. Absolutely. Meanwhile, the ivory trade decimated the forest elephant population in northern Africa, and the Roman supply of war elephants dwindled to nothing. In AD 193, the Praetorian Guard murdered the Emperor Pertinax and then proceeded to auction off the throne to the highest bidder. Again, we talked about this in our Praetorians episode. I think it was episode two. The winner was an ambitious senator named Julianus. Julianus put elephants in the field against Septimius Severus, who was challenging his claim to the throne, except he didn't use real war elephants. He used circus elephants. And that ended about like you'd expect. According to Dio, the elephants found their towers burdensome and would not even carry their drivers any longer but threw them off too. Not the way battle-hardened war elephants of the previous centuries would have behaved. This was a giant elephant fail. No self-respecting war elephant of the wars of the Diadochi would have acted this way. Exactly, but these were circus elephants. They were used to wearing dresses and throwing flowers. Okay, so we're going to move on now to Southeast Asia. While the use of war elephants dwindled in ancient Rome, it continued for a really long time in Southeast Asia, India, and the Middle East. Southeast Asia in particular had an interesting war elephant culture. They used elephants in battle right up until the 1800s. Warriors often fought duels on elephant back. During an elephant back duel, both riders and elephants would fight. In 1424, two brothers of the King of Siam decided to determine who would succeed their father by elephant duel. Both brothers died in the duel and the third brother took the throne. And let's be honest, Jenny, in this situation, I'm the third brother. You're the one who does not want to fight in the duel. I'm not getting on an elephant and fighting my brother for succession. Nope. Friends do not (laughs) let friends get killed in elephant duels, Jen. 
Exactly. <laughs> um, interestingly, Jenny, women in Southeast Asia also fought on elephant back like badasses. Records tell us that if a female warrior rode on an elephant, her driver and ground crew would also be made up of female warriors. There's this one legend of a female warrior from Vietnam in the 3rd century AD who fought to free her homeland from the Chinese riding on an elephant. Her name was, and I, my apologies for the bad pronunciation, you guys, um, her name was Lady True. One memorable quote from her is, and Jenny, this quote is so cool. I'd like to ride storms, kill sharks in the open sea, drive out the aggressors, reconquer the country, undo the ties of serfdom, and never bend my back to be the concubine of whatever man. Supposedly, she was nine feet tall, had three foot long breasts that she tied behind her back, and used to ride into battle on the head of an elephant. I feel bad for her boobs, man. Maybe this was a time before bras. Clearly. There's another really interesting story that may also be mythological about a famous elephant back duel with women involved. In 1549, which is a little outside of the purview of our podcast, but we still want to talk about it, the king of an area in what's now Thailand fought an elephant duel with the viceroy of Prome over his throne. The king's elephant panicked and fled. And fearing for her husband's life, the queen, whose name was C. Suryotai, and I'm so sorry for the mispronunciation of that, and her daughter rushed to his defense on elephant back. After a courageous fight, the viceroy cleaved the queen from shoulder to heart with his spear, killing the daughter as well. And according to legend, the queen's helmet fell off as she died and her long hair spilled out, revealing that the viceroy had been fighting a woman. And this just reminds me of that iconic image from Lord of the Rings where Eowyn battles the Witch King. And the Witch King says, hinder me, thou fool, no living man may hinder me. And Eowyn, who's dressed up as a male soldier, says, but no living man am I. You are looking upon a woman, Eowyn am I. And she then whips off her helmet and all her hair falls out and she's a woman. I love that scene. That's also like my favorite scene from the entire trilogy of Lord of the Rings. Mine too. It's my absolute favorite scene. You have to wonder exactly how much Tolkien owes to the rich history of war elephants in various cultures. Yeah, absolutely. So as the use of firearms rose, elephants became less and less useful in battle. War elephants persisted in India and Southeast Asia until the 1800s, when war with the Europeans brought them into contact with guns and cannons on a large scale. Cannon fire could cause even the best trained elephants to stampede, and the large, slow-moving elephants made excellent targets. We forgot to warn you about that section, but um, there are a few other disturbing moments coming up. So elephants were used as late as World War II as beasts of burden in war. In one notable example, the Japanese invaded Burma in 1942 and press ganged large numbers of local mahouts in their logging elephants. The British, who were in control of Burma at that point, also used elephants in the war effort. They used them to build bridges, roads, and airfields, as well as carry supplies. The elephants on the Japanese side were the target of air attacks and bombings to disrupt supply chains, although some British Air Force pilots asked to be excused from bombing elephants. Elephants were also used by both sides in the Vietnam War. Interestingly, the U.S. had sensors that could detect high levels of methane that the elephants produced and used those detectors to find and take out enemy camps and supply lines hidden under heavy forest cover. Elephants are still used for logging in some parts of the world. I'm sure you've seen them in zoos. They're also used to give rides to tourists and sometimes to haul supplies. But the great war elephants of the ancient battlefield have left us, like the Carthaginians, pacing the walls and speaking the names we remember into the dust and hoping the gods will grant us just one glimpse of moving gray hide through the parting mists of time. 
So that's all for this week. Thank you guys for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new topic. Should we tell them what it's going to be, Jenny? Do we know what it's going to be yet? We we play this real fast and loose, you guys. We do, but I think next week is going to be Jenny's boyfriend. Is this the very special episode? It's the very special ancient history fangirl episode introducing Alric of the Visigoths. Oh my god, you told them. Oh, I'm blushing now. I, guys, we haven't recorded it yet, but I don't know. It may take us many times to get through this. I'm just telling you. I'm going to be giggling and acting like a fangirl the whole time. The entire time. It's embarrassing. So in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan with a T on Facebook and on Instagram as Ancient History Fangirl. You can also find us on our website, ancienthistoryfangirl.com, where you can get the show notes. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, to keep these stories coming, we have to stay caffeinated or on war elephant level rations of alcohol. Boozed up. And neither of those come for free, sadly. You can buy us a latte or a cup of tea or some new research tools, some better recording equipment, an elephant cocktail. And you do that by visiting our website and by clicking the buy us a latte button and going to our coffee page. Every little bit helps. And don't forget to rate our podcast. This helps us a ton in building our audience. You guys, thank you so much. Thank you. 